1: Welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Hoover Harris, editor of DegreeOrNotDegree.com. And with me today is Dr. Matthew Hora, who is an assistant professor of adult and higher education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's here to discuss his book, Beyond the Skills Gap, Preparing College Students for Life and Work. Dr. Hora, thank you for joining me today.
0: Glad to be here. Thank you for having
1: me. I wonder if we could start with just hearing an introduction and learning a little bit more about your background.
0: Sure. So, I'm currently, as you said, an assistant professor of adult and higher education at UW Madison. My academic training is in educational psychology, specifically the learning sciences. And before that, I'd studied cultural anthropology at the University of Maryland, where I was very interested in food habits and why people shop the way they do. And that's what got me into really trying to understand people's life histories and how culture affects decision-making. But before that, I had no aspirations to become a researcher or an academic. I mostly worked on organic vegetable farms in the West Coast and wanted to be a vegetable farmer someday, and someday I may end up doing that.
1: That's quite a diverse background. And I think I saw an English major back there on the undergraduate resume, didn't I?
0: Oh, yes. And that's why I tell undergraduates that are pursuing English that it's a great decision, despite what a lot of people will tell you. Because if you could learn how to write, there's a lot of jobs out there that are desperate for good copy editors and good writers. So, yes, a proud English major.
1: All right. Great. And the book, Beyond the Skills Gap, I think it's very timely in that it seems like we see articles and commentary about the skills gap issue on a weekly basis these days. I'm curious what prompted you to write the book and and do as much research as you did on this subject.
0: Yeah, so I think the idea originated um, around the time of the Great Recession, so two thousand and eight. I had been involved in a lot of research um, on STEM education, so science, technology, engineering, and math in colleges and universities um, because there's a very big attempt to change how professors approach their teaching from a didactic 50-minute PowerPoint lecture to a more engaged mode of instruction. And so I was studying how institutions were successfully or not changing um, how professors taught. Then I had a short gap in my research program, and I was just paying attention to the news. And like you said, the skills gap was talked about on national and local news almost every night. I think what prompted me to really pursue it as a research program was in Wisconsin, Um, Governor Scott Walker, in particular, took hold of the skills gap idea and was not just talking about it in his speeches, um, but really embedding it in his his public policy um, with respect to workforce development and higher education. And so what had happened is there became this public battle between some economists, academic researchers, and some politicians about this idea of the skills gap. And it piqued my interest and away I went. Skills gap is a
1: somewhat vague term, and I believe it has a lot of baggage that goes along with it. You make the point in the book that it's used to mean a lot of different things to to different stakeholders. Could you say a few words about what the concept of the skills gap is? And also, I came to understand from the book, there is actually a debate about whether it exists or not. What's the story on the skills gap?
0: Right. So... One of the sources I would direct listeners to is Dr. Peter Capelli. He's a labor economist who's written extensively about the skills gap. Um, He wrote a really nice review of three ideas which are, you know, part of the taxonomy of skills issues, if you wish, in labor economics. There's the idea of a skills gap. There's the idea of a skills shortage. And then a skills mismatch. Now, a skills um, shortage is the idea that within a given region at a given time, you have a shortage of people with certain skills where the labor market's in, in demand. Um, a primary example of this in Wisconsin um, is welders in Milwaukee. A lot of politicians and business owners were saying, you know, we really need welders in Milwaukee. We have lots of well-paying jobs, but there's none out there. People have left the trades. Um you know, we can't find them and there's a problem. So that's a skills shortage. Um, A skills mismatch is a version of that. It's just speaking really more directly to the actual competencies a person has, you know, the ability to read a blueprint, to do certain types of welds, their literacy and numeracy skills. And so those two ideas, skills shortage and a skills mismatch, they're Huge bodies of literature out there about those, and they're very specific to the relationship between a specific occupation and how people are trained and the types of skills they have and then the demands of the job itself. The idea of a skills gap is different, and it encompasses a really broad narrative about the relationship between higher education, job needs in terms of skills, and then the demands of the labor market. And the skills gap idea essentially goes well beyond talking about if we need more welders in Milwaukee to assigning blame to why that's a problem in the first place. And the skills gap narrative assigns the blame in the educational sector. And so when people talk about the skills gap in a place like Wisconsin, the problem that we that it the problem that's causing the shortage of welders is that the Technical colleges, the University of Wisconsin system, and the high schools are failing to educate people correctly. And so it's a much more expansive narrative. It assigns um, causality between education and people's skills in the labor market. Whereas when you look at how people actually study these things, um, it doesn't go to those links. Now, one of the things that really piqued my interest about the idea is when this issue of welders in Milwaukee came up, like I said earlier, a labor economist. historian at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee actually studied, you know, well, do we really have a shortage of of welders here? And he found that we didn't, that actually wages had stagnated, that there were a lot of welders out in the workforce, but they were in some cases leaving the profession due to wage stagnation and offshoring. And so he wrote a piece saying the skills gap is a myth. And that started a very public um, controversy and debate in Wisconsin. And so there's been a lot of research primarily looking at um, wages, because if there is truly a gap, you should expect to see wages increase for something like welders in Milwaukee. And there's been a lot of research showing that if you define skills gap in that way, it does exist in some places, um, such as the uh, gas drilling in North Dakota during the energy boom. But... It doesn't exist on a national basis, and it doesn't exist certainly in the scale that proponents have been arguing for.
1: So you were intrigued by this skills gap narrative. What research did you do in Wisconsin? Tell us about the extensive research you conducted to learn more about the truth and the reality here with respect to education in the state and the labor market in the state.
0: Yeah, so one of the the exchanges that happened when the skills gap idea became a public controversy in Wisconsin is that um, a representative of the business lobby in the state in response to this economist report said, well, I looked at all this analysis of labor market data, but I was waiting for the part where the professor went and actually talked to employers. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't come. And so being a trained field anthropologist who actually goes out and talks to people, I said, huh, okay. So I'm going to be that professor that actually goes out and talks to people about whether or not you are having problems hiring welders. You know, what's your relationship with the local technical college? And so me and two colleagues, Ross Benbow and Amanda Olisson, we found out throughout the state of Wisconsin. We obviously couldn't cover every city and industrial sector in the state. But we tried to cover the main areas such as Milwaukee, um, the Fox Valley region where Green Bay is located. And we visited over 50 companies in advanced manufacturing in the biotechnology sector. We picked biotech because it's an up and coming part of the economy in Wisconsin and advanced manufacturing because that's one of the traditional cornerstones of the state um, economy. And we talked to CEOs and HR directors. We visited their companies and just asked them questions. How are you finding the, the local labor market? Um, are you having trouble with people's competencies and skills when you interview them? What are your relationships with the local college and university? Do you have an internship program? Do you go and do you know uh, mock interviews or talks within classrooms? And then we went kind of traced backwards to the programs um, in colleges and universities that fed into those industries and talked to the faculty there about really similar issues. What kind of skills are you trying to teach your students? Do you have any outreach with local industry? And basically our goal was to really try to find um, and document and share insider's perspectives about this relationship among skills, students and careers and it's a very complicated and messy web of um, factors that go into the types of skills a person grows up with and graduates from college with and then all the factors that go into whether or not a company is hiring and then how they hire and in our book we tried to tease apart some of the the main issues that we felt were really salient to this whole pathway of college to work and then just tried to take apart the skills gap idea and show it's really far more complicated than the way it's often talked about in the press. I was about to say,
1: I think a sub subtitle of your book could just be, it's complicated and you do a great job of showing all sides of this skills gap question. And in a moment, of course, I want to ask about your findings and conclusion from all that great research. And I love that you and your colleagues actually went out and talked to people rather than just read news articles about the subject. It was really thorough research. Let's frame this just a little bit further in the context of Wisconsin. Wisconsin is almost a character in your book, I would say. In in one sense, it's very focused on that particular state and its politics and its economy. But at the same time, it seemed to me that Wisconsin is a great microcosm of these questions at the national stage. And I suppose in that sense, Wisconsin is a good sort of everyman state. So even though in one sense, it's very specific to Wisconsin, I really got a good sense of the larger national question as I read about it. But one thing that is unique, I think, to Wisconsin is this thing called the Wisconsin idea, which I had not heard of before. And it's got a little bit of an interesting history. What is the Wisconsin idea with respect to education and vocationalism and so forth?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And being from Southern California, um, where I was, to be honest, educated not to look too much at the Midwest um, and learn about the Midwest, the, this whole idea of the Wisconsin idea was a big surprise um, when I moved there. And I found out that you know the the state university system has a very proud history, and you know is one of the first land grant institutions um, created in our country and has a very um, extensive or it used to um, extension system of agents throughout all the counties in the state, helping farmers and community members, trying to really take what's being discovered in the research labs at the university and extend it beyond the classroom and beyond the boundaries of the university to affect people of all walks of life throughout the entire state of Wisconsin. And in a nutshell, that's what the Wisconsin idea is. You know, let's remove the boundaries um, that divides the the university from the rest of society. And that idea became institutionalized and formalized in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And it's really baked into the way a lot of people in the state and in the university think about their work. I, I did hesitate at first to put so much emphasis on Wisconsin in our book, um, because I did want to speak to some national issues. But like you said, in many ways, Wisconsin has become a microcosm for the nation with respect to labor policy and higher education policy. At the time that we started to write the book and do our field research, there was massive public street protests, mostly in Madison, but some throughout the state, about Governor Scott Walker's um, policies to dismantle some of the unions, which have a long and proud history in Wisconsin, um, in terms of their ability to require um, members to pay union dues and so forth. And so that obviously is something that has spread throughout the country. In terms of higher ed policy, there's been a, a greater focus on career development and Um, vocationalism within the research universities, not just the tech colleges. There's been an attempt to weaken tenure protections um, and shared governance, meaning the faculty and the students also have a say in how a university is run. Um, There's been a weakening of that in Wisconsin, and that has since spread to other states such as North Carolina and Kentucky um, and so forth. And so in, in a number of ways, we felt that what we were seeing happening in Wisconsin, and we were hearing in our interviews with people as well, was kind of a a, a forerunner of things to come um, on a national scale. And for better, or for worse, we've seen that come true. Yeah, it definitely seems like
1: we are in the middle of or approaching a period of peak vocationalism as far as people's attitudes towards what the university should be and do and in response to things like crushing student debt and other things that are making people cynical about the education system. And more and more of our political leaders are promoting vocationalism. I thought it was interesting with respect to this Wisconsin idea notion that, as you say, in the late 1800s, and you have some quotes from the early 1900s, I believe it was 1904, you've got the, I think he was the president of the Wisconsin Board of Regents giving this inaugural address where he says that we should never worry about pragmatism in education. We will fail if that's our focus. And it, it almost seems like he was anticipating this vocational push way back in 1904 and, and defending against it. And from that point, as your book documents, the state has shifted gradually, it seems, towards this more vocational interest, which, as you say, mirrors what's going on in the rest of the nation.
0: Yeah, and and throughout the history of higher education in our country, there's been you know, uh, an emphasis on vocational and professional training, going back to the some of the New England colleges focus on just training future lawyers or future clergy. And so, you know, it's it's not a new phenomenon. I think what has really taken shape in recent years, and my colleague, Bailey Smolarik, who's uh, really taking a critical look at this idea of soft skills, one of the things that Um, she has been arguing is that this isn't just a new wave of vocationalism um, in terms of higher education saying, you know, focusing on jobs and career preparation is the most important thing, say at the exclusion of um, civic engagement or the development of the mind. It's not just that because that's been happening, you know, again, for over 150 years. What's new about what's being talked about today and this focus on soft skills really gets to issues of character and personality and who a person is. And this conversation about soft skills, and you can see this in the K-12 schools, um, with discussions of character education and grit. And in higher ed, communication is probably the the competency that's most associated with this push. What people are talking about now is actually forming, you know, a young person, a college student in terms of a personality that fits specific companies and specific occupations so it's not just let's make sure that the college education gets somebody a job it's that let's while they're in college actually form them forge their personality so that they fit company x or occupation y and from our perspective um, that's extremely problematic for a variety of reasons so Is much of this skills gap
1: talk, just to put it somewhat crassly, is this just employers complaining about not having employees who know exactly how to do rather tactical jobs? And is this just the way that employers complain and try and offload their burden and their responsibility of training their own employees and trying to shift that to the
0: state and particularly to educators? Is that at the heart of a lot of this? So, in answering uh, your question, Hoover, which is a great one. I, I want to first say that I spend a lot of time talking with employers, whether they're you know a small business owner with a staff of five or six people to multinational corporations where they have you know very large factories in multiple places throughout the state or country or world and there are a number of employers that we talk to who recognize that you know, the private sector and also the public sector, if they're a nonprofit or a government agency, needs to do more to train their employees, that they need to do more to interact with um, the educational sector so that the students that they do have applying for their jobs are better prepared. Um, There's, again, so a number of employers that we talk to and I read about who recognize that they need to play a stronger role and are very, very proactive. Um, and trying to forge stronger partnerships. And especially in the community and technical colleges, you can see a lot of really interesting and innovative partnerships where this is happening. Um, So I say that because I don't want to paint a broad brush of, you know, business owners or employers as, you know, loudly complaining that schools are failing. What I think is happening is that there definitely are some companies and employers out there that are doing that. But I think it's In some cases, it's more the policymakers, the legislators who kind of take up the voice of maybe one or two of the loudest complainers and kind of, you know, paint this entire educational sector as a massive failure. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, and we saw this in Wisconsin, there's barely a conversation about the responsibility of the firm to train their own employees, to develop human capital within the firm. That's rarely talked about. It's rarely talked about a, a, the role of broader society in preparing human beings, not just for um, the workplace, but for, you know, to be a member of society. It's almost always talked about in terms of the high school, the college, or the university completely failing. And so, in answer to your question, um, at that level, the answer is yes. That there's been a, a framing of the problem in ways that really is disproportionately um, blaming education for all the problems, and not really looking at what's happening as students leave college and how that can be fixed or improved to not just increase students' prospects, but the economy. I hear your point, though, that from your experience with
1: employers you recognize that they recognize that it is a more nuanced situation and they share some responsibility for training and and skills transfer and so forth. But those nuances get lost in the media and political treatment of the situation. So that makes sense. As far as your other general takeaways or findings or recommendations from all your research, speaking not just to employers, but also I think an equal number of educators, What conclusions did you draw about the skills gap and how to address that problem to the extent it exists?
0: Yeah, so like I had mentioned before I started studying skills issues, I was uh, focused on instructional design and classroom teaching in the STEM disciplines, and I had no anticipation that somehow those two research programs would dovetail and speak to one another so beautifully, but they did because as we were out talking to not just the, you know, the administrators and the faculty in these technical colleges and universities, but also some of the employers who were really involved in their local college, we heard time and time again about the importance of bringing real life, authentic problems into the classroom. For example, instead of just talking about welding or maybe doing kind of a, abstract exercise you know in the shop actually creating a problem for students that's kind of a realistic portrayal of what a welding task would be in a factory down the road in green bay and in the technical colleges that's kind of where we talk to people at least that that was part for the course um where classroom exercises were designed to facilitate the transfer of knowledge from the classroom to other situations and contexts, especially the real world of a a factory. And this really happened in the technical colleges for two reasons. One was a lot of instructors actually came from industry. Um, There's a requirement in Wisconsin that these instructors needed to have some business experience, Um, and some of them had decades of experience. So they had this large repertoire of real-world problems to draw upon when they created their lessons. And the other um, factor that came into play was in Wisconsin, in the technical colleges, a program needs to have an advisory board that's comprised of employers and other community members. And so you have people that are in industry feeding information to these um, instructors on a regular basis about Here's the the new machine that we're using in the field. Here's some new developments in, you know, advanced manufacturing that we're seeing happening in Europe, Um, and we want you guys to pay attention to that. And so, what this the the reason that this dovetailed with my prior research is a lot of work in cognitive psychology and the learning sciences for decades has been arguing that if we want students to transfer academic theoretical knowledge from the classroom to the real world. We need to have these more authentic problem-based situations in the classroom for them to work on. And so that was one of the great things that we saw um, examples of as we went out and talked to people. And as part of my other research, I do lots of classroom observations, and there's lots of people doing it. One of the problems is, though, there's lots of people that aren't doing it. Um, either they ha- the instructors haven't been trained to teach in a non-lecture way, or they don't have the experience to draw from in order to create these real-world problems.
1: So I think what you're describing, if I understand the term, is active learning. Is that a fair description of these types of problem-solving in-class activities?
0: Yeah, that that's become um, kind of the moniker for this class of instructional strategies. Yes. Yeah, and we're hearing more and more that old-fashioned lectures are not
1: effective, but that's just what professors keep doing because that's what they learned. That's how they were taught. So you addressed classroom techniques. What about the subject matter itself and the content? Where do the liberal arts, for example, land in this skills gap question? And does this push towards vocationalism demonstrate the relative weakness or lack of value of the liberal arts or the anthropology major or the English major?
0: Oh, that's a great question, Hoover. I'm glad you brought that up. But first, I have to mention something about the lecture issue is, in in my previous research where I was doing a lot of classroom observations, it's very rare to see a person only lecture for 50 minutes straight. Hmm. Definitely are people out there that still do that. But (laughs) most often what you see is this continuum um, from lecturing to complete active learning. And so it's not really a binary. Mm -hmm. Lecturer, active learner, people often are somewhere in the middle and there definitely is a time for direct instruction. Um, you know, you need to do a lecture to set up a problem based learning activity. And so I just wanted to mention that um, oftentimes there's this misconception, I think, that it's a, a clean cut dichotomy um, lecturing and active learning, and that's not the case. Yes, I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. So th- one of the problems with the debates about the liberal arts is that in the public domain, and especially with, policymakers and politicians, the liberal arts are seen as synonymous with the arts and humanities. You know, and I'm sure listeners will recognize um, politicians who have castigated the French literature major, um, art history, religious studies. I read somewhere Tarantino film studies was singled out for criticism. But the liberal arts is an idea and the way it's modeled and enacted in most colleges and universities encompasses the stem disciplines it's a model of education that's multidisciplinary just based on the idea that for a student to develop the intellectual and moral skills to be successful in not only work but in society they need to have some math and some english and a little bit knowledge of how human society works from a sociology class And they need to understand something about biology and so on. And so that's been one of the problems with the public discourse about this. It's viewing liberal arts completely as if students are not taking any courses that are tightly connected to either STEM disciplines or technical material that is closely related to um, an occupation. And that's been one of the troubling things for me about this conversation is a complete lack of recognition of the relationship between some disciplines and academic majors and jobs. Some of them have a really tight coupling, um, such as a nursing major, that is very tightly coupled to a specific job. And to borrow the parlance of um, legislators in Wisconsin, there's a very clear career pathway. For a lot of legislators, they only want majors that have clear career pathways. And there's talk right now at places like UW-Stevens Point of eliminating all majors that do not have a clear career pathway. And those tend to be things like sociology and art history and the arts and humanities. The problem is those students, generally speaking, are getting jobs. They are getting hired and they're doing well. It's just that a field like sociology or anthropology, they're training students with a variety of competencies and skill sets that can apply to multiple occupations. So there's not one clear cut career pathway, maybe a sociology or anthropology professor. But most of those graduates are going into different fields. Um, The same can be said of biology, where students are going into um, nonprofit work, into research laboratories, into biotechnology, into um, public sector. And so one of the misnomers or misconceptions in this discussion of the liberal arts and career pathways is expecting every major to have a clear pathway to a job. And that's simply not how things are structured and play out in the labor market.
1: This is probably a good point to discuss the concept of habits of mind, which you address in the book and the importance of that and how that is different or not from this more common notion of soft skills. And we were just speaking about the liberal arts and it seems like the poor battered liberal arts are left to defend themselves now through the argument that, well, you you develop soft skills and you you learn how to learn, learn how to think. Talk about habits of mind, please, and, and the relationship with the soft skills concept, which you mentioned is problematic.
0: Yes. Yeah, so the, the term habits of mind um, came up in our field research with an electronics instructor at a Milwaukee Area Technical College, who was speaking about how he didn't just want his students to learn how a circuit works or how to report, repair you know, a motherboard or something. He said his goal was to teach students habits of thinking and reasoning and problem solving when it comes to electrical repair. So that no matter what task they're faced with, they can fall back on their their skill or their aptitude at thinking through a problem methodically and carefully so that they can solve most any problem. Um, In another academic program in Madison, Wisconsin, and this was robotics, um, the idea was talked about more in terms of ways of thinking about troubleshooting. And what was really interesting for us is the way that that instructor talked about the seven-step process of going through um, troubleshooting where you diagnose the situation, you collect different sources of information about the problem, looking at the, the technical manuals, talking to colleagues, going online and looking things up. And then from among those different options, sec- selecting the most optimal solution. That description of troubleshooting is remarkably similar to the way some people talk about critical thinking, in other disciplines where you have to evaluate different sources of information and then using your best judgment and reasoning ability, pick the best one. And so we heard this time and again from instructors. And I have to say the most vociferous defenders of the liberal arts in our field work were some of these technical college instructors who had come from industry and seen cycles of layoffs and recessions and recognized in their own experience that for their students to be Um, best armed for this economy and some of these, um, you know, cyclic recessions that happen is to teach them not just skills for their first job or how to do one technical thing on one specific machine, but they needed to teach their students habits of mind and reasoning that will serve them in the long term. Now, when it comes to soft skills, one of the, the problematic aspects is that just that term soft, you know, it, It it speaks to ease and kind of fluffiness and mushiness. And when it comes to how people in practice talk about how to teach them, that's rarely discussed because the idea is that they're easily acquired, that they're unproblematic to teach and learn. And in fact, they're extremely difficult to teach and learn. Um, You think of oral communication skills, for example. We've had technical college instructors and students talk about um, how Challenging it is to learn how to speak to clients and customers to find out exactly what is the problem with your server. You know, it requires a lot of active listening skills, kind of talking to somebody through who's a non specialist, how to describe a problem without jargon. And that takes a lot of training and time. And so it's thinking of soft skills as something that's easy um, is extremely problematic when we think about how to best prepare students with those competencies when they go out in the world
1: that's very interesting i wanted to ask about your thoughts of the present day i think it's been probably a couple of years since you performed your research and drafted this book and it seems every week now we're seeing more stories about low unemployment and record low unemployment and the general economic boom And I wanted to get your sense of the status of the current skills gap and what the economic boom and low unemployment do to that narrative and that situation. On my blog, Degree or Not Degree, I linked recently to stories in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere that give one the notion that employers are becoming very generous with their hiring terms and are much less selective and As one article put it, they're hiring students who are 75% qualified for the positions. So given that very tight labor market, are employers getting more quiet about this issue or does this exacerbate the skills gap issue?
0: Well, what's interesting, Hoover, is you still see um, articles and interviews with policymakers and employers come out about the skills gap. Now it's a continuing problem. I think what's shifted in some of the rhetoric recently has been less about the skills, you know, that job applicants don't know how to do math or how to weld, and it's more about bodies. And in Wisconsin, people have been talking for a long time about the how the demographic changes in our society, the the mass retirements that are starting to happen and that will happen with the baby boomers and the lack of replacement of a younger generation to take their place. That That was an issue that was being talked about in 2008 when we were out in the field. Um, I see it more discussed now because I think in some firms you are seeing some of those senior managers or senior supervisor positions become vacant as people retire, and there may not be the young people to bring in to fill those positions. Um, what strikes me though is still this idea of a skills gap and colleges are failing and education's failing. It's still being talked about. It's still being um, discussed and promoted, and yeah, that that I, I don't understand. Um, where is now? It seems like the the conversation needs to really shift to, well, how can these two sectors, education and industry, or the employer sector, really work together to, you know, make sure that okay, we're going to bring in this person that seventy five percent. Um, qualified technically for this position, how can we bring them up to the level of 100% and not just in terms of their college program, but in terms of in-house training?
1: Well, speaking of present day, my last question for you, I wanted to ask what you're working on currently or what your next project is. Are you going to stay in this skills gap labor area or move on to something else?
0: Well, so one of the current projects is it's a National Science Foundation supported study where we're investigating four specific skills because we wanted to get beyond talking about skills in the abstract, because obviously there's hundreds, if not thousands of them. But we're really drilling down into um, communication, teamwork, problem solving, and self-regulated learning. And we're investigating those in uh, specific occupations, because again, we wanted to start drilling down to a more fine-grained level about how these things play out on the ground. So we're looking at petroleum engineering, computer science, and nursing. And we're doing this in four specific cities, um, Denver, Seattle, Houston, and Raleigh, because again, we wanted to get you know really specific. And that study has been fascinating because essentially we're tackling what some people call the soft skills, And what we're finding is just how complex these are in practice in terms of how people construct ideas about what is good communication for a nurse or good communication for an oil rig technician. And one of the things that's really come up, um, again, touching upon the topic of why this idea of soft skills is problematic, is how notions of good communication are being constructed by certain people. um, Often educators. Um, sometimes it's uh, experts or policymakers. Often there are people um, they're the reports that you read talking about good communication often don't reflect understandings of how minority populations or you know non-white populations actually think about what is good oral communication. And the reason I bring that up is is we talk to employers, many of whom have, again, um, operations in other countries, this issue of cultural competence and speaking across ethnic and cultural boundaries is really important. And as we continue to have these normative ideas of something like good communication being espoused and taught, um, we're seeing that as an increasing problem. And so that's one of the research projects. The other main one that I'm focused on now is internships, because again, this idea of internships and apprenticeships and work-based learning is being talked about repeatedly. I guess I should thank Governor Scott Walker for sparking much of my research programs because it was his idea to require that all University of Wisconsin graduates, in order to receive their bachelor's degree, had to take an internship. Um, That proposal was rejected by the legislature, but that idea made me think, well, do we really know enough about internships to ask students of this or to make their degree contingent upon an internship? And the answer is clearly no. And so I'm studying how internships are designed at the college level, how students and employers and educators are experiencing them. And that research is a comparative study of how internships are being um, designed and experienced in the, both the US, but also in China and Japan, because I wanted to get a real good understanding of the way culture and history shapes how we think about people's introduction into the professions, and also how different political and economic contexts are influencing how we're shaping the college experience for students.
1: That all sounds fascinating, and it sounds like it will keep you very busy. So I'll say we will look forward to your next book. This book is Beyond the skills gap, preparing college students for life and work. I've been speaking with Dr. Matthew Hora from the University of Wisconsin Madison. Dr. Hora, thank you for joining us today. It's been very interesting.
0: Great. Thank you for having me. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye.